This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of July 11th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. These are the dog days of summer, but the heat isn't the only thing making us squirm and seek shelter. Folks with most of their savings in the stock market have been in the profoundly uncomfortable position of watching their portfolios lose 20 to 25% of their value since the beginning of the year. Meanwhile, and at least until very recently, we were paying more than $5 per gallon for gas. Fuel prices have been one of the main factors in skyrocketing inflation, and we're still waiting on second quarter economic numbers, but most experts agree that if we're not already in a recession, there's still a good chance we'll be stuck in one. These are anxious times, although you'd think by now we'd be used to it. Maybe what we need is a pep talk, or at least some straight talk from someone who tracks this stuff for a living. So I've asked Pete Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner, one of IBJ's personal finance columnists, to give us his view from above the day-to-day muck that seems so depressing and even threatening. We hit it all from inflation and recession to gas tax holidays and what the Fed is doing to cool down spending. Here's our conversation. I am always happy to welcome back to the podcast, Pete Dunn, aka Pete the Planner. How is your summer going? Mason, it's going pretty well. The uh, central Indiana humidity has ripped its claws into my life and made me run for shade like every good ginger before me has done. <laughs> do you have to you know, like do the SPF on your head? And I mean, like everywhere on your body? I'm sunshirt dad. Yeah, no, I mean, I walk around looking like a beekeeper most of the times, even when I'm outside, especially when I'm outside. Yeah. You know, in your recent column, you mentioned uh, some of the stuff that you uh, have been doing to avoid the clutches of inflation. And so I wanted to talk about some of that stuff today. And you, of course, had your ear to the economic firmament of America. So I know that you're attuned to the massive amount of anxiety that Americans are shouldering about their finances. Obviously, we're getting hit at the gas pump. Those prices are one of the main factors in skyrocketing inflation overall. Then we get smacked in the face by our 401k balances or whatever, wherever we put our retirement money. Under the mattress, I guess, is the only good place right now. Stocks were down about 20 to 25% over the first six months of 2022, depending on your favorite index or economic sector. And by the way, the Russell 2000 is now my favorite, just so <laughs> I don't know if that helps anybody, but I like the Russell 2000. What we really need for you is to talk us off the ledge, or at least give us a better idea of where to stand on the ledge. And this this is going to be one-on-one, but let's start with inflation. Can we just demystify it for everybody? Can you briefly explain the elements in the economy that have led to this record inflation? I will answer that. I'm still Googling firmament. Uh, Inflation, very simply, uh, is that the price of goods and services can increase over time. And boy, they certainly have. And uh, I I will note that most often people absorb these price increases. Um, Typically, inflation runs 2 to 3% a year. Uh, Financial planners often use that 2 to 3% 
annual inflation to project people's retirement income, you know, needs. And I'll note, again, most people absorb the impact of inflation. They say, ah, the price of beef went up, gas prices went up, and they don't care. And they just deal with it. And they hope that their price of or their, their cost of living increase that they potentially get from their employer makes up for it. Mm. But Mason, we're at a time now where just about everyone has to stop doing that. And I'm not sure people have figured that out yet. I know people love to complain about inflation. Like we figured that part out, but I don't think we figured out the, oh, I, I actually have to change my behavior. I can't drive as much as I previously have driven. I cannot go out to eat as much. I cannot buy a steak. I have to buy hamburger, which is of course an old cliche, but I, I don't think people are reacting quickly enough right now. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you my experience that I just had over the last couple of weeks, I went on vacation for a week. This is something that was you know, planned, I mean, literally a year ago. And we go up to this little town in upper Michigan. I mean, no stoplights, no chains. I mean, it's a small town. And I would say that the price of food at, at the restaurants there, everything was at least three or four dollars more expensive. Obviously, the gas you know, to drive for seven hours to get there was quite a bit more. And at the time I was like, Hey, we're on vacation. That's fine. Blah, blah, blah. And then I took a look at my credit card bill. I'm like, Holy moly. This is terrible that this has happened. You know, when I want to go on vacation. Yeah. It's adding up. And I I think it being summer travel season, it being, you know, 4th of July uh, timeframe. I think people are naturally, this is the time of year where people spend a lot of money. It's this time of year. It's the December holidays. And I also say it doesn't feel like there's any end in sight for inflation. I have read now for the better part of six weeks that come the end of July, gas prices are likely to be $6 a gallon, right? When uh, I'm ready to, to take a cross country trip with my family. And so I don't know, I don't know what's gonna happen next. Although I have a small hunch from a business standpoint, I think corporate travel which to some degree helped buoy the travel industry as families will, were you know, still trying to decide to come back into the marketplace. I think corporate travel is going to slow because I'll say even for our group, which we travel quite a bit, you're talking about two, three X plane prices of what you're used to. So when you put together your budget at the beginning of the year, we've blown through it and it's uh, you know not even halfway through the year. Here is this is an interesting difference. Again, we we had two vacations uh, scheduled for this year. The second one is coming up uh, when we're going to fly to Mexico. Those tickets were seven hundred dollars. You, I understand from your column, recently booked a flight to Des Moines, Iowa, and it was what more than a thousand. Yeah, it was like twelve hundred bucks. And I mean, no offense to Des Moines, which of course is French for the Moines. <laughs> I I don't want to. I think it's the many Moines, actually. But yeah. many Moines. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I I don't want to do that, right? And so, I think what you're going to see here is supply and demand, of course, ravage us uh, us once again. You're going to see the demand for travel come down, and then. Airlines are going to have to figure out, are they going to try to make their profit by keeping prices high? Or are they going to try to stoke demand again at, by lowering prices? And I, I'm a little worried about that, Mason, because if you think about the travel experience that a lot of people are having right now, it, it seems like there is quite the, 
quite the cluster between what air traffic control is able to do, especially in the southeast side, uh, southeast part of the United States, what airlines are willing to put up with, what they're willing to put their customers through. It's a little shocking. I got to be honest. I, it feels like there's just not enough scrutiny to the point that there's not there's not going to be change coming anytime soon there. In terms of consumers taking evasive action, it means is there any more specific advice that we can give them besides, well, just don't spend so much money? Uh, yes, I think it's knowing where you can make changes, uh, plain and simple, right? You've got the, the natural regular spending categories. You've got food, uh, you've got fuel, and then you've got whatever your vices happen to be. I mean, if you happen to be a person that loves to online shop or uh, go to concerts or, or whatever, I, I think that's where you can begin to make changes. I'll also note, we, we talk about, I believe there's going to be a, a, a huge increase, if not uh, double digits, close in, increase of energy prices uh, coming to central Indiana, which has been projected. So that hasn't even taken hold yet. Again, I'm a little I'm a little weirded out by this because I also think uh, at some point in time, college inflation slowed down in the last few years as the, the cost of college. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The, the cost of college inflation has slowed. It used to be around seven percent a year. I think eventually what you could see happen is some of these other categories that have cooled down, they could heat back up. You could see college inflation again so that uh, campuses can pay their faculty and staff and keep their buildings open because they are also being ravaged by the, you know, the, the ills of inflation. So forward looking a little bit, again, kind of worrisome. That's why you want to try to be proactive and do something. I just don't get the feeling of talking to people that people are doing much of anything other than complaining about. So we've heard politicians propose like gas tax holidays, like the president President Biden, who suggested temporarily cutting the 18 cent per gallon federal gas tax. Now, those people who are against gas tax holidays, and it's a significant amount of, of folks, say they would cut revenue streams that states and the federal government use to finance infrastructure projects, which you know, everyone agrees that we need. And there's some worry that fossil fuel companies would just ad adjust their prices accordingly to make even more profit. Uh, do you have a particular take on the usefulness of a, of a gas tax holiday? Is that a worthwhile pursuit? I think it would be incredibly pointless. Uh, I, I do think that President Biden, Biden is under a tremendous amount of pressure to do something, do anything. And this is something he can do. But at the average American driving 1,200 miles a month, um, and let's say you get 25 miles to the gallon, and you've got an 18.4% reduction in, in federal gas tax. Mason, you're talking about saving $26 total over a three-month period. And you've taken a lot of money that goes towards infrastructure, and it has disappeared at a time that our country, country needs to invest in infrastructure. Now, on a state level, you know the state legislature deciding not to, to touch that as of yet, that would be have a little bit bigger impact. That combined with a federal tax holiday would be a savings of about $100 total over a three-month period, which is a little bit better. Right? Who am I to say that $33 a month is not a big deal to somebody? It's certainly a meal out or something like that. But I think that's short-sighted. I think cutting the tax on those products would be short-sighted because I agree with you. I think gas retailers would look at that or oil companies would look at that as an opportunity to, to squeeze out a few more cents of profit here and there. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. 
Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our discussion with Pete the Planner about inflation, recession, and that sinking feeling in the stock market. What is the Fed doing to lower inflation? I mean, of course, we all have a sense of it, but explain it to us so we can understand it. So, by raising the the federal rate, uh, the Fed rate, what what we're doing interest rates is you're you're making it more difficult to borrow money. You're you're making it you're you're shrinking markets, so to speak. So, uh, let's think about housing for a second. If housing interest rates go up, that means that to purchase a home and and to be able to qualify for the payment that it takes to make a mortgage payment on a home, the market of buyers shrinks because fewer people are going to be able to afford that payment because it is in theory more expensive. That should in turn bring down housing prices because it'll bring down demand because there'll be fewer buyers in the marketplace. So take that idea and and put it in various industries and and capacities within our economy and, and you've got what is meant to be a cooling effect to just settle everyone down and make it tougher for people to go out and and make uh, voluntary purchases. I, I, I hate to say this, and I may have said it on this show last time I was here. Typically, a recession is the solution to a problem. Now, in itself, it's very painful and it's awful. And no one who is uh, finds themselves the, the victim of a recession wants a person like me to say, hey, this is the solution to a problem. But the recession is the solution to a problem. It's It's an overheated economy getting back in line. This happens every few years. And and so by increasing interest rates, we're trying to calm down the economy. We're trying to get to a point where people are not spending so much money and there is pain associated with that. That's a really interesting take. I've never thought of before that the recession, which we all look look upon as as some sort of an invader into our financial lives and the, you know, the Darth Vader of economics actually is an immune response from the economic ecosystem. Far be it for me to start making uh, medical analogies here, uh, but, when, but when you're sick, a lot of the symptoms you're dealing with are the response of your body trying to fight whatever is uh, invading you. And I think there there's some parallels there with the recession. A recession is good. And, and man, that's gross. And man, I'm really sorry. Send your emails to Mason specifically. <laughs> think about 2008, 2009. You know, think, about, think about those timeframes. What happened once we got through that recession? the economy took off again. The stock market took off again. Unemployment came down uh, again. But but you are going to see increased unemployment with with a recession, which, is, which isn't great. It's a, such a weird time because there was such an increase in uh, income where, where people were able to go out and, and, and get base income increased and, and switch jobs. The great resignation led to, to pay increases. And so I think that's going to make the next six to 12 months Rather peculiar. But if you check the tapes, my friend, and I know you will, you and I have had this conversation for the better part of two years, and, and I told you then, and I'll repeat it now, 2020, weird year, terrifying, uh, but people had great habits and they made really good personal finance decisions because they had to. 
2021, we wanted to uh, release our pent-up consumer demand, and we were ready to feel normal again. So 2022, as you will hear on the tapes, was always destined to be this way. There was no chance it would not be this way, which we've been saying for two years, and, and here we are. Uh, when you stoke that much money into the economy, that much, those many stimulus dollars, this is what happens. And that's not to say it was a mistake to have those stimulus dollars, but this just happens to be the byproduct of it. I mean, the word recession in the media often is used for shock value. Can we demystify just a little bit more? What, what is the real definition of recession? Yeah, it's when the, the gross domestic, domestic product shrinks. Uh, so, so the economy puts out less productivity. It puts out less economic activity than it did the previous quarter. And so the technical definition of a recession is that that happens two quarters in a row. And what, what we know is that the first quarter, the, I, I think I, it was just an updated number. I think it shrunk by 1.6% or something like that in the first quarter. And it is very likely to have shrunk in the second quarter. And we'll get those numbers here in the next month or so. So Mason, that is to say, we're probably technically in a recession right now. It's just a matter of how long uh, it, it takes to get out of a recession. Usually, I believe the number is nine months is what it takes to get out of a recession is sort of the, the, the average. Will we see that? I don't know. I, I could see us definitely being out of the recession by the second quarter of next year, but I, I could see us being in this recession, of course, in the second quarter now, the third quarter and the fourth quarter. It's sort of hard to argue that that won't be our reality. I'll, I'll put it to you. What will have to happen in the next six months to yank us completely out of a recession. The only thing that can really happen is the interest rate increases will, will cool everything down and people will spend less money uh, and that could work. Do you have any tips for recession proofing your life? Yes. <laughs> Here's the weird <laughs> part is uh, that, that and, and I think this is a helpful comment, but it is also uh, admittedly, it's hard to deal with. And so here's the comment. Sometimes you have to put your personal economy above the economy itself. And the best thing people can do right now is, is to stop spending money. That is the smartest thing you can do right now. And I'm not talking, you know, Great Depression, you know, withdraw your money from, I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm just saying like, show some discretion. Like if, you, if Friday is pizza night and it's always been pizza night, Maybe Fridays like put a Red Baron pizza in the oven night and, and instead of the, the $40 for delivery. And my friends that own pizza restaurants are, are, are apparently texting me immediately as I say this, but you, you have to change your habits. We were shocked into behavior change in March of 2020. Were you not? I mean, Mason, I'll ask you. I love asking you questions. Were you shocked into behavior change March, April, May of 2020? I would say maybe the biggest behavior change for me personally was not my decision. I was working from home. Working from home means I am not driving anywhere, essentially. Also means I'm not spending money uh, on lunch, you know, which I, I have you know, decided over the last several years is like my one luxury thing. I like to go out with my work friends and eat and it's expensive and my wife isn't like crazy about it but you know i we decided you know that's that's the thing that really makes my day so i'm going to do it well i wasn't doing that anymore and so we were saving quite a bit of money just on that also uh we were saving uh, some money on childcare as well yeah totally right i mean so what i've just heard you say is from a gas and food standpoint you were probably saving 300 bucks a month easy 
right? That's that's uh, I think that's fair, yeah. And for most people, avoiding childcare uh, costs during that time, they were sell- saving well in excess of a thousand bucks. So you're looking at eighteen thousand dollars difference per month for pe- or for for year for people in that situation, on top of the twelve thousand eight hundred dollars of stimulus that the average family of four received. That's a thirty thousand dollar annual net difference during that time frame that the average consumer had to improve their lives, and they did. And so the fact that the advanced child tax credit ended in December 15th of 2021 after six months of flooding people's accounts with money, and now we're in this you know pending recession, incredibly easy to see that this was going to happen. I think what could happen is you could see employers pump the brakes even more on the back to work uh, in office uh, environment mm-hmm. because it'll save people the fuel costs that you just mentioned. It'll save people the lunches out with office friends. I think that's very possible going into the fall. Now we come to what seems like our annual conversation about what to do when the stock market tanks. Again, stocks are down about 20, 25% for the first six months of the year. Folks who are close to retirement are freaking out and that seems justified. Folks who are maybe a few decades from retirement certainly aren't happy. What is the advice? Yeah, you made you made mention of the pre-retirees just pr- just prior to retirement. You know, yesterday, I was actually thinking about this group because you often think about that group, and then I added some more people to that group. It's what if your kid is going to the school to to college in the fall of this year, fall of next year, and your college fund took a massive hit to the tune of you've just lost a semester's worth of tuition or an entire year's worth of tuition if you didn't have an age-based portfolio. like That's a shocking idea that you save for 18 years for your kids to go to college. And then because of sequence of return risks, which is when the market goes down at the wrong time in relation to your time horizon goals, all of a sudden an entire year is lost. With the market down 25%, Mason, let's say you are fully funded to pay for 100% of your kid's college. Market pulls down 25%. 25% is one entire year of college gone. So I would say this. Most people should be doing nothing. <laughs> Most people should not be overreacting. <laughs> yeah. I will say if you don't have an age-based portfolio, especially with your college funds, or even you look at a target date fund for retirement, that's problematic. You, you, you should look at an age-based portfolio because it has a glide path, which, which changes the allocation of your investments based on your time horizon as to when you might need that money. Right. Because we're conservative as you get closer to retirement. And is, is that actually the same usually for, uh, for college saving plans as well? As you get closer to needing to send your kid to school, the investments become more conservative. Yeah, I mean, totally. So it's funny, my kids are three years apart, but they they are in different bands of these age-based portfolios. So they often have different returns from each other mm-hmm. because their money is invested differently. And I, of course, I don't do anything about it because it's automatic. Um, but yeah, college funds are called age-based portfolios. When you talk about regular investments or your retirement accounts are generally called target date funds, but same concept. If I'm an investor and, and I just have a bunch of stocks that I feel great about, that sounds like I do not have an age-based portfolio. No, you generally, most people don't. Most people with their non-qualified or non-retirement money don't have an age-based portfolio because it just isn't necessarily prudent. 
I will note, as I tend to note every couple of times I'm on the show, the crypto investors are certainly learning a thing or two. And I, that's not me putting on tap shoes on their graves or anything like that. But it is noting that when you are in a speculative market and you're an amateur investor and you put too much money in a speculative investment, you're going to have a lot of sleepless nights. So I'm, I'm certainly sorry for that population, but moments like this are inevitable for speculative investors. Is there anything else I should be thinking about? From a financial perspective, no. I, I think that, and this is, I don't, I'm going to say, I don't like to make predictions. I, every time I'm on here, I make predictions. So let's not lie here. Uh, I think the darkest part of this in terms of time frame is probably late fall. That's when I think people will feel the constriction of the recession and the stress will increase. It's summer, people are outside having fun, but when you start to go inside to have to have fun, when you have to go to sporting events, uh, big sporting events in town and spend a bunch of money to do that, and oh, all of a sudden the December holidays are on the horizon and October is gonna be interesting. Now, I'm sure you and I are gonna talk between now and October, but I will note I will definitely come on in October and we will see how wrong I am. Oh, good, good, I'm gonna put that on my calendar. Yeah, Christmas is gonna be interesting. It will be because if it's typically the time when most retailer, well, you know, the old adage Black Friday is when retailers get into the black. It used to be that way, at least. Is it going to happen? I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know, especially coming off midterm elections. Who knows what's going to happen? Oh, boy, that's a whole other ball of wax. All right. Yeah. That's enough for me. <laughs> Thank you so yeah, much so for hey, spending time. Good morning, listeners. I hope you had a great Monday morning listening <laughs> to the podcast with me. I myself am going to grab 30 cups of coffee and uh, turn my day around. <laughs> Get outside and get some of that good vitamin D because you're going to need it. All right, buddy. I think appreciate it. Thanks so much. My deepest apologies. My thanks again to Pete the Planner. A quick reminder, his column on personal finance appears regularly in the print edition of IBJ. And you can find several years worth of his work at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories and features in the latest print edition of IBJ I'd like to point out. First up, John Russell examines what came of the strategy by Ascension St. Vincent to open micro-hospitals across central Indiana with designs on upending the traditional hospital model. The idea never really took off, and the flagship neighborhood hospital, located in Noblesville, closed in late June. Also in this week's issue, Daniel Bradley has the latest on plans to create the massive LEAP Innovation and Research District in the Lebanon area. And Dave Lindquist pops the cork on the success story behind Mom Water, a hard seltzer manufactured in Indianapolis. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. I will say it's easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. 
Thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.